G'day and welcome to another episode of Women's Baseball, The Inside Pitch. Well, 2023 is going to be huge for women's baseball with the return of the WBSC Women's Baseball World Cup. It has been a long five years for the women's baseball world, but we are back. In 2023, the WBSC group stages will be held, firstly in Canada in August and then Japan in September with two groups of six battling it out for the spot in the 2024 World Cup Finals. On today's show, we have head coach of the Australian Women's Emeralds, Jason Pospisil, here to chat about all things Aussie women's baseball, but also all things Jason, as we learn how he got into the sport, why he took the coaching role with the Emeralds, his coaching philosophy, his processes for selecting the squad and the team for the World Cup. But enough for me, let's go to Jason. Pretty excited today to have, look, the man in charge, Jason Pospisil, Australian Emeralds head coach. Jason, thanks for joining me. Uh, thank you, Amy. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Uh, first thing I'll start with is where are you? And apart from this podcast, where, what, how does baseball fit in your day? Um, well, I'm just uh, at home today on a rainy Sydney Sunday morning. So, um yeah, winner. Oh, I've taken no no winner ball for me this year, but I'll I'll start next week in the BNSW uh, high performance program to um, you know help with the with the Emeralds players that have been selected in the um, in the national squad and uh, yeah, so just come off a, a pretty long summer season personally, you know, playing and and coaching and then obviously into Emeralds mode now. So a uh, couple of weeks, last couple of weeks has been pretty hectic on that front with. Uh, you know, going to nationals and trying to sort out a, a squad um, for the upcoming World Cup. So it's been pretty hectic. So uh, the last uh, couple of weeks have, have been pretty full on, but um, I'll, I'll get a little bit of a breather here for you know, six or seven days and then and then get back into it. And that summer season, you coaching and playing, your Blacktown workers won the premiership in Sydney. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. My, my beloved workers, we um, had a great season this year. We won the Won the first grade title, um, third grade title, um, and we're also club club champions of the of the state league this year. So it was a, a great season. Um, we've had a pretty successful time the past five or six years, and it's uh, yeah the, the club's in a really good really good spot at the moment. So tell me about your journey, like the Jason Pospisil. Why baseball? How'd you get started, and where? Um. So. I started playing T-ball when I was eight years of age. And I actually started, funny enough, in a, a T-ball team within a softball club. So my, my dad played baseball when he was um, when he was younger. He used to play cricket in the summer and then played baseball in the winter. And um, then my mum and dad were both playing in a mixed softball team in um, our our pub, the public school I went to actually had its own softball club. So I played with a bunch of my mates in T-ball and I played that for a couple of years. And then because my dad played baseball, I just wanted to try baseball. So I joined um, one of the one of the guys that I played with in, in our school T-ball team was um, a guy by the name of Matthew Sundstrom. Um, and his dad, Barry, was the head coach of Blacktown Workers at the time. So I went and played my first season of baseball at the age of 10 for Blacktown Workers. And, um, yeah, that's how it started. So I, through my teenage years, was pretty much baseball and cricket. So I played both. I just played cricket 
um, uh, at, at schoolboy level. And um, it's actually a pretty decent cricket play too. But baseball for me, just once I started to understand that there's opportunities to play professionally, play in the big leagues, be on TV and earn millions of dollars. It was like, no, that's that's what I'm that's what I'm gonna try and do. So that's uh, that's how I essentially got involved in baseball and, and, and why I've I've stayed involved in the game ever since I was ten. And what position were you? Uh, I was a middle infield. I actually started as a catcher, mm. funny enough. So I, I caught for one year and then um, I ended up playing shortstop um, and, and pitched obviously, you know, most players in their junior years have ever go on the mound. So I pitched a bit up until about the age of 16 as a two-way player. And then I was having some arm issues. And um, and, and Barry Sundstrom, who was my coach, he said, mate, I think we're going to put the pitching stuff to the side. And um, I, was, I was always really, really tiny. I mean, I shouldn't say always really tiny. tiny. I still am very tiny. Um, <laughs> but um, he, he said, no, we'll put the pitching stuff to the side and you're just going to concentrate on playing shortstop and... Yeah, as a middle infielder um, until I signed. And then when I signed, I, I become a, a genuine utility player. That's what the, the Twins wanted me to do. So I ended up playing short, second, third. I played left field, center field. I played every position in professional baseball except pitch and first base. <laughs> wow. So, well, t- tell me about that time over there when you were signed and, and when you went over. And, and what did you learn? What, what, what were some of those takeaways you took from just, I guess, day in, day out baseball? Yeah, my um, I, had a, uh, I was with the Twins for three years, um, and then I got released. But uh, I I only played in the US for two years. Um, first year was two thousand and no, sorry, yeah, two thousand, and then um, two thousand and one um, had some had some really really um, de- yeah deep seated family problems that I had to work through with my parents while um, in my second year. So the Twins were good enough to let me stay home that year and sort them out. And then I, I went to the Major League Academy that year, which was eight weeks at the time. Um, so I went there and then I went back in 2003 for my last season and I, I was released in the spring training the year after. So um, the you know professional baseball, it was a complete eye-opener to me. Nothing that I'd ever experience here in Australia, obviously. And I don't think that I was necessarily ready for it in regards to just the, how, how big a product it is. And, you know, you're on the field every day and you're surrounded by, you know, so many different teammates from different countries, you know, a lot of Latin, a lot of Latin speaking teammates that, you know, speak Spanish really, really fast. And you you know, just, just completely overawed, especially my first year, I was just completely overawed. And um, I didn't handle it very well. And then my third year going back, I, I went up a level actually, and um, I felt way more comfortable. Um, I, I, I sort of understood my game a lot better and surrounded by a really, really cool coaching staff that were really supportive. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the un- unfortunately, <laughs> that next spring training, I got released. So, um, but from a coaching side of you, point of view, so much about the coaching side in those three years over there. Just you know, information from a coaching point of view to me is just information that you've taken on from where you've learned it from, from somebody else. And you're really just regurgitating it. And 
you know, you, you've got, you essentially filter out stuff you like and stuff you don't like and what you think works and what you don't think works. But at the end of the day, having that three years in professional baseball and taking that information and, you know, the practices and the philosophies and um, being able to put them in place now as a coach, it was, it was hugely, hugely beneficial. So is that where you think your coaching bug, where the coaching bug bit you was over there, over in the States? Um. Probably, probably before actually. I think it was two. I'm just trying to think. Two. Th- it might have been the sec. Actually, the second year, that 2002 year, where um, I was, I stayed here in Australia. Um, I helped in the in the old in, uh, Institute of Sport program as an infield instructor. So Andre Desjardins, who sadly is no longer with us, um, he was a big influence of my career as a player asked me if I'd like to come down and work with some of the infielders in the program. And that's probably where it started for me from a coaching point of view, because I really enjoyed the instruction part and trying to help other players um, understand you know, the different skills and, and, and philosophies around you know, just infield play at that stage. And that's where I started to you know, start to investigate into other things. You start to look, is there more, you know, what more can I do? What other stuff don't I know? And, that's where it really started for me. And then every season when I come back to play here in Australia, you know, the, in, the pro off season, even though I was preparing as a player, I'd still help out around the club, you know, with different things. People ask me questions about, you know, what do you do here and what do you do there? What do you do with the twins and stuff like that? And yeah, that's where it started for me. It probably started when I was still playing. Yeah. <laughs> and before we switch over to fully to coaching, from a playing perspective, what was your career highlight I guess what if you I mean you're still playing obviously Blacktown is that it could be your workers premiership but what was what was it like some of the your career highlights it's funny like I I look back on I retired really quite I I retired at 27 Mm. so I first retired at 27 um after I played the first so before the new ABL started in 2010 2009 they started the Claxton Shield which sort of a precursor league to the ABL and I played that year um, for New South Wales. And after that, I'd reti- I retired. I'd, I'd, my body was breaking down. Even at 27, I was getting injuries. And I just didn't feel I could do the necessary work with to get my body and that prepared to continue to play at that level. So, um, and I, I, it was probably then I reflected back on what I'd done playing. And like my career doesn't stack up with, nowhere near as well as some of the greatest players we've had in this country. But you start to look at different highlights and, you know, there's probably not one. I put, like getting signed was obviously a massive, massive um, thing for me because that's what I wanted to do. Um, and then my last year of Pro Bowl 2003 um, with the Elizabethan Twins, we were in the Appalachian League. We actually won the championship. So I got a nice piece of hardware out of that, which was nice. So that, that's, that was a, a pretty big highlight. You know, having won, won, won two Claxton Shields in 04 and 05 with New South Wales, um, had a chance to win, um, yeah, two two state league titles now with um, with Blacktown as a player. Uh, one as a manager, one as a player. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't say there's one highlight, but, you know, you look back and there's there's a few things that are pretty pretty cool when you reflect on it and you think, oh, that's a pretty cool achievement. Let's get to you as a coach. Uh, you've, you've spoken about a lot of the other coaches that you've, you've learned from, you've absorbed from. What about Jason Pospisil, the coach? What are your coaching philosophies? What, 
what do you think the players will see from you and, and what do you want to see from the players? Uh, no, that's a hard question. Think, <laughs> that's a big question. Yeah, I think, I, think, I think overall, like from a, from a, um, from a strategic I've always been, I've always heavily dictated to, to, to my teams that we have to be very good from a pitching and defensive point of view. I think that's my main philosophy is that we have to be able to pitch well, and you have to be able to defend in at any level of the game. If you look at you look at any level of the game, you look at an under six T ball team all the way through to the best, you know, the major leagues, MPB, KBO, WBC, Premier Twelve, any level of the game, the teams that are at the top end are the teams that pitch and defend the best. And you know, you look at you go through look at World Series and playoff games, the teams that pitch the best are the ones that win that win, um, and it's at any level. So, and that was the biggest thing I tried to highlight to to the Emeralds group in 2019 when um, I started the role was that we have to be able to pitch and defend better to have a chance to become world champions one day. So, I think pitching and defense is a big thing for me. Um, I, I think once you become an international player the level of accountability you have now goes um, through the roof essentially like you you're accountable now to your your preparation um preparing your bodies getting your skill work in etc and for me the i just want the players to become the best versions of themselves and just just be who they are i don't expect them to do anything outside of what they can already do there's a reason that they're selected on a squad or in a team, it's because we as a staff believe in what they can do and we want them to bring that skill set to the table and just be the best version of themselves. And while baseball is a team game, it really is 20 individuals trying to be the best that they can. And when they all are the best that they can, that's when the team comes together and you play a good brand of baseball. So... That's probably my philosophy. Listen, and my philosophy changed a bit over the over the years in regards to a, a few things. You know, like when I was very heavily influenced by um, the, the the Twins, and when I came through that system, which was all around, you know, they, they used to play a lot of small ball and stuff like that. Now the game's changed a bit. You know, the game analytically and sabermetrics now comes into play, and you start to look at what you know information that can give you and what story it tells you, and you adapt as you go, but Defense, absolutely, and then every individual athlete, you know, being accountable to themselves to be the best that they can be, and not doing anything that's outside their capabilities. And to the Australian Emeralds, uh, you you took the role in late 2019, um, so you've had it for about four years. But just tell me about that switch to women's baseball. Why, I guess, why the Emeralds? Why why was that so attractive to you? Oh, I I mean, for me, any time there's a, a a job that becomes available managing a, a national team is is always enticing and and honour if you're successful in getting that role. It don't, didn't matter to me, male or female. Uh, once I saw it was available, I thought that it was a program that I could really have an influence on. Um, and I'd been involved in coaching women's baseball um, in the early 2000s. Um, uh, back then, I, I dated Renee Stromitis, who played for the Emeralds. So I was involved in women's baseball a little bit from a coaching point of view. And I've always found um, the female players to be 
extremely, extremely rewarding to coach because they they want more information and they're they're very, very willing to listen. They put their egos to the side and they want to get better. And that to me is what coaching is about. It's about trying to help athletes become the best versions of themselves. And yeah, when the role become available, I thought that's something I'm really doing. I'd really like to to yeah, put my name forward. And lucky enough for me, it was successful through the interview process. And um, it doesn't feel like four years because I really haven't done much. Um, we had the COVID scenario. It was like, I think September 2019 was when um, I officially was, was accepted in the role. And then October, we played the Bendigo Challenge um, against the Japan um, uh, University All-Star team. That was October 2019. And then we obviously 2020 and 2021 with COVID, there was nothing really, like we were just in limbo. So um, there was no national championships. You know, we're lucky enough, I think, to get the showcase in in 2021 in Adelaide. I think that's right. So chance to watch that. Um, but yeah, like it doesn't feel like four years. And it, I mean, the last two weeks has been so hectic because it almost feels like I've just started again, really, mm. um, because we've had such a such a, a long layoff. So, um, no, I, 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 I'm genuinely, genuinely, it's a bit of a cliche, but genuinely excited to get to work with the group and uh, and and see what we can achieve come August. Now, lots of talk around the selection of players, but. But the selection of the coaching staff, can you tell me about your coaching staff that you will have in Canada and, and how you see that you'll work together and, and I guess, complement each other? Yeah, but I'm really, really excited about our staff, actually. I think one of the things for me is that I, from a culture point of view, I'm really high on having people involved from a coaching, on the coaching side that have been part of the said program that they're involved in because I think with that brings a... Um, it brings a, a natural passion for the for the program. So um, I've got Samantha Hamilton and Lisa Norrie both on the staff. So both uh, respective managers of their state women's teams. That's that's really exciting for me to have them involved. So um, Samantha will coach first base. Um, Lisa will coach third base, and they'll have their individual responsibilities on on the staff as well. Um, Sam will work with the outfielders defensively and Lisa will work with the, with the catchers. Um, and our pitching coach, which I'm wrapped to have on board, is, um, is, is former Major Leaguer Chris Oxbrick. So Ox will be our pitching coach for this, this upcoming World Cup group. Um, yeah, his career speaks for himself. He, he's played in all three of the, the big leagues around the world, played in Major League Baseball, pitched in the MPB, pitched in the KBO, been on the senior national team staff, obviously started that was uh, the starter in that, that big Olympic game when we beat Japan in 2004. Um, and uh, I've had lucky enough to have Ox as my pitching coach when I managed the Blue Sox and also pitched for me as well. I managed him as a player. So great staff. Um, they'll, they'll all complement each other well. And even from a coaching, managing point of view, I, I've said to all three of the staff, their job now is to just become the best version of themselves as a coach within within the staff. So I've said to, to Lisa, I want you to become the best third base coach that you can be. I've said to Sam, I want you to become the best outfield instructor that you can be. And take on board their individual responsibilities. And you know, if they lock into their individual roles, we'll complement each other really, really well. 
Um, I'm sure the players will really enjoy having them on board. And it, it's it's a good, it's a really well balanced staff. Really, really good. Really well balanced staff. Yeah, and how significant do you think it is? Obviously, Sam was at the first five World Cups as a player, and and Lisa's been at the last two as a coach. So the experiences that they bring as well from the actual environment of a World Cup, how important do you think that is? Oh, hugely important. You know, those two having an understanding too of the players is a huge, huge help to me because I'm not on the field with them every single day um, or as much on the field with them as, say, Sam and Lisa are. So that's a, that's a, a massive, massive benefit to, to me as a manager. Um, their experiences, being able to draw from their experiences and get feedback on them um, and the players and what they've seen in international competition really helps me outline some of the areas that we need to improve in. And it, it also outlines some of our real strengths as well. I think you can't, you can't overlook the strengths of what, what we have as a group. And I'll, I'll rely on them fairly heavily in regards to understanding what players have done at past World Cups and, you know, put different, managing different personalities, etc. They'll be a huge, huge benefit. I guess over the last the four years that you've been in the role, it's, it's been pretty challenging. You the first couple of years, not a lot of baseball. Uh, the last twenty four months, we actually have seen two nationals and two showcases, which has been great for the players, but also for yourself uh, and the coaching staff. Tell me how uh, you've been able to to assess and watch and uh, and really take stock of all of those players over those t- last two years in particular, uh, and, and some of your processes that you've taken. I have not missed one of them games. So the last, uh, the last two showcases and the last two nationals, I've watched every single game. So, um, twenty-one showcase in Adelaide, I was there for the for the entire time, um, and and cast my eye over those games. And then, obviously, the the twenty twenty-two um, nationals in Adelaide as well. Um, the the twenty twenty-two showcase in Geelong, unfortunately. The, um, the dreaded Rona got me the day before I was due to fly down to Geelong. So um, I, couldn't, I couldn't go, unfortunately. But lucky enough, we had the, all the games on KO. So I was able to watch all the games on KO. Oh, sorry, you um, had to listen and... to me that whole time. I apologise. <laughs> no, you did a great job. You did a great job. It was cool. So um, Thank you. It, I, was, uh, I was sitting there in isolation at home by myself. Oh. And it was great. Just watch the games and... Actually, really, really valuable. Like that's to me, like a, 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 a crappy situation, but a real positive. But actually, being able to watch a game on TV um, is is not a bad thing. So, you know, scout of those games, and even our our um, international visitors that came over, I I scouted them pretty heavily just in case we're going to see them. And um, and then obviously this year's this year's nationals. So. All four of those events, I didn't miss one game. So I've kept my eye on on this playing group for the last, you know, two two years on on any event that they've got, and uh, taken into consideration performances I've seen at those events. Um, plus, you know, prior knowledge too of what players have done internationally before, and even 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 down even down to their club their club baseball. I've been looking at stats from around the country and what everyone's doing. So. Um, yeah, I've, I've got my finger on the pulse, so to speak. Now, this is a very big question, and, and obviously it will vary across position to position. Obviously, the skill sets for, for different positions um, will vary. But I guess 
what do you look for in an athlete? What are some of the, the, the traits that you're looking for on the field and off the field outside of those specific skill sets? Um, yes, yeah, so I think, yeah, I think, listen, obviously individually, individual positions have got, have got specific skill sets that we're looking for. Uh, one thing I did in 20, sorry, leading into 2020 before that World Cup was postponed because of COVID was I went through 2018 World Cup um, all the games over there had TrackMan data and I was able to access a website and gain a whole bunch of TrackMan data on all the teams internationally and then take on board our testing numbers from all our local players here through their state relevant state programs and, and put together a, a, a women's version of a, of a professional scouting grading scale. And that, that gave me somewhat of an idea about, okay, well, what, what is a good 60-yard sprint time for, for a female athlete? What's good arm velocity at different positions um, for a female athlete? What's the average fastball velocity for a female pitcher, et cetera? And that gave me an idea of what benchmarks were going to be and what I wanted the players to work for. Because I think the important thing is if you want to play internationally, you need to know what an international athlete looks like. Yep. And we're not trying to a team to represent Australia. We're trying to pick a team that's going to win us a world championship. And to win a world championship, you have to know what the best players in the world can do and where you need to get to as an athlete. So that's really, really helped. So, for example, we look at benchmarks, about a 70-mile-an-hour benchmark pitching velocity for our pitchers. Um, five seconds flat or less to first base. Um Pop times, for example, of catches of about two five five or less. You know, stuff like this that we know now based on data, and that helps us from an evaluation process in regards to what we're looking for in certain players on the field. Um, average exit velocity in the World Cup um, is about seventy five miles an hour. So we were able to look at TrackMan data from the national championships, and I'm not saying that's the only thing we pick player on I, I think that's one of the things people get confused with i'm not just picking players based on their data they also have to be able to play the game you know they've got to be able to plays defensively they've got to be able to you know make good decisions base running they've got to be, have good bat to ball skills offensively a myriad of things that you look at but having the athletes understand where they need to get to and ha us as a staff and me as a manager understanding what tools a player needs to have makes it a lot easier for us to narrow it down to what players um, are going to be selected on the squad of 25 and 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 finally the final team come come July and to that data it's it's clear that data and, and analysis and all the types of speeds and spin rates and all those types of things have just taken over baseball and it's it's fascinating to me because well, we had the testing, uh, I guess, in that 10, 12 years. I was in the Australian team. It wasn't to the level that we see today. I mean, we did our beep test. We did our sprint test. We had the, had the analysis, I guess, um, at trials and camps, but not to what, I guess, the data that's available to you today. And, and, uh, and I would have been fascinated to see where, the, I guess, this, the first iterations of the Australian team stood when it came to that stuff. But as far as that, that whole data compilation analysis, how much does that add to the already really heavy workload a coach has? I think so back from, from 1996, when I, when I first entered the New South Wales Institute of Sport program, 
we used to test regularly every every month. So we test once a month, and we slightly different. Like we still run a sixty yard dash. Um, we still, you know, do throwing velocity uh, just to measure your run and your um, run and throw tool. And then we'd have yeah, physical testing. Like you said, we used to do beat tests. Um, we used to do strength tests in the gym. So I was always accustomed to testing, right? And then when I took over with, obviously, the Emeralds program, it sort of baffled me a little bit about, not that testing was neglected, but the amount of testing the girls did. Like, to me, the only way that you can show performance gains is you've got to have some benchline mm. data for a player to have that, okay, if I run, for example, an eight-second 60, well, how do I know if I'm getting faster or not? looking at it yep. i can't i need to get times some things you can observe it's it's simply objective versus sub- subjective the data gives you objective measures so it doesn't lie and then you've also got the subjective evaluation of a player by watching them play okay how how well are they you know how well are they going as a defensive player are they making adjustments at the plate um can a pitcher control the running game well, the outfielders back up bases, you know, that's all subjective. Yep. I don't need, I don't need data to tell, tell me that, but um, it, it, I think one thing with analytics and sabermetrics is we're starting to find out. I think it's gone way, way too far that way. I think it needs to be a mixture of the objective or analytics and the subjective, which is the baseball side. And, when you have a good balance and you're able to utilize the, the benefits of both sides and you merge them together is when you can start to, to make some, some really good evaluations of players. Yep. And you talk about all of these components going together and you can, I guess, effectively rank players in whatever those data metrics. And obviously then you've got your more subjective measures. When it comes down to putting that together in a team of, I mean, squad of 25, team of 20, it's not just we're picking the top, X in amounts of lists, it, it becomes a, it's almost like a game of Tetris to try and piece that together. How do you, how do you piece all that together for that final 20? Yeah, I've got a little bit of a, a different outlook on how we're going to put together this team. I think traditionally, like you take a roster of 20 and traditionally at, at the higher levels of baseball, it's going to be, okay, well, 20 roster of 20, we're going to have a 10, what I call a 10, 10 split. We'll go with 10 pitches only. 10 position players, and away you go. Um, I'm, I'm not entirely convinced that that's the best way for us to be able to win. I think what you find, and this is one thing, one difference I have seen in the women's game compared to the male game, is that in the women, there's a, a far higher percentage of, of genuine two-way players. Yeah. And our better, some of our better pitchers are our better position players, and some of our better position players are our better pitchers. Mm. So for me, it's about piecing together 10, 10 split, but just the, the best 20 players that we've got. Yep. And it's up to me and the staff to you know, piece that together in games and, and fit that together on how we get our, our, our best product on the field. So, for example, we might have a, a player that is our starting shortstop that might also be in our top two or three pitches. Well, they might play shortstop for, for five innings and then guess what? You're coming in. You're going to throw the sixth and seventh. You know, for example, um, we might have a situation in the third inning where we need to play a matchup, and one of our position players might be in in our mind our best our best chance to do that. So 
they might come in, throw three outs, get three outs, and then go back and play a position. You know, so which is profoundly and, and, different to the first World Cups, like the first couple, like two thousand four, two thousand six. We had distinct, almost ten tens. We had like ten pitchers who literally that's all they did get us get a cushion for the bench, and that's all you did. So it's amazing the change to our game in that generation. I'm I don't want to, I'm not saying um pl- pl- I hope it doesn't sound disrespectful. There's probably still coaches that, that would see it that way. Mm. That would want to have a ten ten split, and that's fine. Um. I just look at the talent that we have on this 25 and I think, well, you know, like we've got some pitchers that are 70 mile an hour plus that are also our best, some of our better bats, yeah. better position players. So we're going to have to mix and match. And like you said, it is, it's, it, it's almost like a game of Tetris. You've got to piece together, right? So you've got to look at different scenarios. If I have to, for example, if say our three starting infielders are all three two-way, genuine two-way players that can pitch, that might now rely on us to pick an extra couple of infielders so we've got some defensive depth for when those um, starting infielders go on the mound. Well, now I might have to bring someone in to play defense, you know. So it's it, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a, a puzzle, um, but the staff and I we're all on the same page. We all agree that we think that's the best way for us to to get our um, put us in the best position to to, to win these games in August. And uh, the, the players have been communicated to as well that they need to prepare on both sides. So I think I looked at the other day, the squad of 25, 20 players that can genuinely pitch. So, and we're only playing six games. So I don't need 20, I don't need 20 arms for six games, but if I've got 20 genuine arms, it means that if I have to use eight or nine pitches in August, well, a bloody good eight or nine, aren't yep. I? If I've got twenty to choose from, yep. so it's 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 really really positive for us. Yeah, I think one of the things that has really stood out for me recently in baseball is that that two way player that that player isn't just a starting shortstop. They're actually also a starting pitcher, or the starting pitcher. They're a starting outfielder. They're not just backups anymore. And I think it's so impressive to see some of the athletes we've got in our sport, and it's so exciting. And to to those athletes, we talk about the selections, and and it's it's. I, I want to ask you something around the moments that you get with those players when you get to select them into the squad. In this case, and and to the team, uh, can you give us a bit of an insight into? Uh, I think back to the, the selections and the moments that I had, the great moments that I had when I found out I was in teams, and you just don't you don't forget them. Can you give us a bit of an insight as how the phone calls and the process went down this week when you told the players? Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 definitely a long night. I think I started about five o'clock in the afternoon once I got home from work, and my last call I made was at about quarter to sorry half past nine. So um, the long night of phone calls. Listen, I think as a manager, it's probably the most rewarding thing when you're when you're calling a player, and especially a first time player who's never been on a squad and you advise them that they've been selected on an Australian squad, um, that's the most rewarding thing for me. And I think of the 25 calls, there's about 15 or 16 that ended up in tears, happy tears, <laughs> so cool. um, which, which, which was pretty cool. And that, to me, means a lot to me because it, me, it, it, it indicates to me that it means a lot to them as a player. And yeah. I've, you know, I, know I, I didn't this before when you asked me about my philosophy, but... It's one thing I, I, I firmly believe that it, as an international athlete, if you need someone 
to extrinsically motivate you, then you're in trouble. I think that motivation has yep. to come internally. And to me, with as many girls that got emotional as they did, that is a great sign to me that internally mm. they're motivated. Um, and the ones that didn't, it's not a bad thing because a lot of them are ones that have been in World Cup squads before. I was about to say, so, if any of the girls that are listening and they're like, oh my God, I didn't cry. Can I get Yes, absolutely. No, you're not definitely, definitely not frowned, definitely not frowned upon. But um, I think it was pretty cool. It was, it's, it's awesome. And even, even for some of them that have been to, you know, two, three World in two or three World Cup squads, you know, some of them were still, you know, I think a little bit of um, relief, you know, mm. like, oh, okay, that's, that's great. I've made it again. I've been working. That's fantastic. And um, yeah, so it, it's it's pretty. It was a pretty cool experience um, for me personally, and obviously a pretty cool experience for those twenty five girls as well. Yeah. Well, if Grant Weir's listening, I did cry when I got my. I got a letter back in the day, my very first World Cup in two thousand and four. I got a letter, and I've got that framed. And then it, remember the days it went to emails, and then it went back to phone calls. I've had them all. So yeah, I cried getting a, a piece of paper. So that was pretty cool. We did both. So I called them all individually. And then uh, once um, once I did that, I got to an email and I sent a group email just congratulating everyone again and some of the expectations over the next couple of weeks. And then, uh, yeah, it's 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 really, really cool for them, you know, for, for some of the players that have, like I said, they're first timers and, you know, you you know that they're in the mix over the past two or three years and you see the improvement and you see the drive and the work ethic and to see them get rewarded. That's, that's pretty cool. Well, just before we go to the world cup, there's one thing I want to ask you, because you, you said it then when you, you got home from work and you spent the entire evening ringing all the players, I guess the one thing that maybe people don't, it's not that they don't know or they don't think is you don't get paid for this role. This is a volunteer role and you're, you've got a full-time job um, as do all the other coaches mm. outside of, of this. How, how do you fit mm. that in? Like how, what's your, what is a normal, I guess it's probably going to ramp up over the next three months, but what does a normal week look like for you juggling your life, your work, and then this team? Um, yeah, my, my, my personal circumstances have changed somewhat the last couple of years. So I was, I work full-time in baseball up until 2021. Um, and then I was with Baseball New South Wales as a high performance manager. I left there to take on a role with the Blue Sox um, under a new ownership group. Um, that didn't work out, so I ended up leaving there. And then um, I took a, a month or two off, and then I thought, oh, geez, I better better get back to work. And, um, yeah, I, I didn't really – I just wanted to get away from working in the game for a while. So then I took on a full-time job in a you know, lawn mowing landscaping um, business with a, a family friend of ours. So I've been doing that for the last couple of years. So that essentially that's full-time, Monday, Monday to Friday. Um, and then once, once I get home, um, in the next probably three months, it'll be I'll be on the field Monday, Wednesday, Thursday nights um, on the field with, with the players. And through to the World Cup. So I'll be working with the with the players that are from New South Wales in the BNSW program, but also keeping, I've got to keep a track of all the players around the country. So I'll be talking to our staff. We're, we're really lucky in a sense with, you know, Lisa's involved in the Queensland program, Sam's involved in the um, Victorian program, having um, Chris Oxspring's also involved on the field here in New South Wales in our program. Um, so 
example, the South Australian, Western Australia players, I'll be relying on reports from their high performance managers and keeping a track of how they're going. So, yeah, the next three months is going to be extremely busy, but it's part of the job. You know, I, I couldn't do a job without knowing that I'm, I'm doing whatever I can to do it to the best of my ability, and I'm sure the other staff are the same. And, yeah, it's going to be a busy three months, but this is life. This is what it takes. So it's part of being, uh, you know, I suppose, a amateur coach. Like all the mums and dads out there that coach their club teams, for example. They work on Monday to Friday and long hours, and they go and coach their club teams. It's it's no different, really. Yep. Just 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 at a just at a more advanced level. Those three months, what um, the players will immerse themselves in all the high performance academies in the states. What are you what are you looking to get out of them? How much, I guess, incremental gains are you looking to get? What what are some of the fundamental things you really want to be working hard over the next? We've just actually ticked under a hundred days to go, so there's not a long it's not a long time. So I think I think the 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 change in the change in group threw a bit of a curveball at us. We were anticipating from information we got we were going to Japan in September, and then they changed us to Canada in August. Yeah. So they gave us a you know five weeks less preparation time. So, but you know that that's the WBSC rolled the dice, and that's the number we got. So we just have to deal with it. I think uh, pretty simply the like you said the players all go to their state high performance programs now. Um, they'll do some baseline testing just at the start of their programs for us to get some benchmark data. Um, I've, se- I've, I've spoken to each player individually about areas of, of focus we want for them to focus on over the next um, two, two, two and a half months. Um, I've sent individual um, player reports to all the state high performance managers so they're on the same page as far as what the players need to, to really work on um, because what we have to keep in mind here is that they're in the squad and we need to see some performance gains because we need to pick a team of 20 out of this 25 at the start to middle of July um, before we head into camp in August. So um, the only way that we can do that is a combination of the, the, the testing with benchmark data and seeing if there is performance gains and then obviously some subjective evaluations from the high performance managers and their staffs around the country um, and hopefully that that's all positive and it fits in with how we want to piece together that 20 and we can pick the team in July. So I, again, it's a bit of a cliche, but the easiest part for these players is probably making the squad. That's probably the easiest part. Mm. I think now the hard work begins and we need to see some gains and you know, we need to see some players get in better shape. We need some players to work on their foot speed. We need you know some pitches to increase their velocity, potentially. A whole, a whole myriad of things that we you know, want, want to see improve. Um, and hopefully the the attitude and the work ethic of the players is of international standard and, and we see those performance gains and we're in the best position we can be come the start of August. Like the training you've got to cover, we've got some great academies here in Australia, but how do you... How do you develop a connection between the players and the staff when everyone is obviously so separated? There's there's five different states and we're, um or six different states depending on obviously the squad that's selected. How do you develop that? I guess that not buy-in, but you talk about that motivation and the inspiration. How do you develop that when everyone's so scattered, knowing they're not going to come together until maybe you camp beforehand or they're at the airport? Yeah, it is it is a very difficult task, and I think it's something that. Uh, 
you know, Emeralds teams before have had to battle as well. I mean, mm. really, from a personal point of view as a manager, you know, I'll, I'll be in constant communication with the players, you know, either through phone calls or text, et cetera, just checking in on how they're going. Um, we'll we'll get together as a squad probably once, maybe twice, twice a month on Zooms just to cover off on some stuff um, in regards to, you know, team philosophies and, you know, our playbook, et cetera. And just to start for the players to get their head around what are some of the things that we're going to implement on the field once we get together. I think that's important. I, I don't want the players to feel that they're going in if they do make the final team and we go into camp on August 1st, that they're just bombarded with all of this information suddenly. Um, you know, I've been a player. You've been a player yourself, Amy. You know what it's like. Mm-hmm. It's hard when you just get this massive influx of information and you're trying to process it and learn it, it it's it's really difficult so um i suppose you know the beauty of technology is zoom meetings we can get everyone together um and talk about a few things most of the girls know each other obviously through national championships and playing against each other before so they they do have some form of relationship which is good and yeah, well, look, it's really no different than the w- our WBC team has just come back from Japan. You know, yeah. those those guys got together. They're together for, you know, a week, prepare, go into the tournament, and look what they were able to achieve. Mm-hmm. I, I, they What they achieved was, was, was absolutely phenomenal. And they did our country and our sport extremely, extremely proudly. So our, our Emerald squad here, it's no different. You know, we'll, we'll do the best we can in the next three months. Hopefully, once we get on the field um, together in August, you know they'll 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 form a you know, form a decent a decent culture. You know, culture to me is is sort of it's a combination, I think, of the staff trying to drive the culture too, but a lot of it comes internally yep. through the players, and um, yeah, that's not something that you can really really control. But um, yeah, I look at the list of one to twenty five, and there's some really really high character high character players there and I think that that's a, a really good sign for me that the the culture is is going to be good and you know keeping in mind too the last World Cup was in 2018 so five years ago it's a long time of this squad of 25 there's 16 of those 25 have never been in the Australian Emerald squad before so you've got nine players that have been part of the squad before but 16 out of 25 is a high percentage of new players. So they all start to meet. For me, I can see them starting to develop their own their own culture within the team 100%. I just want to go back to that comment in regards to nine players having World Cup experience before. I think, firstly, it's fantastic. We have so many new, outstanding young talent in the team looking for that first shot. But I have a question for you around... Uh, that that World Cup experience, it is the jump from a Nationals to a World Cup is huge. And yeah. obviously being part of that first World Cup team, I guess we all experienced it together. And, and then over the, the subsequent World, World Cups, I got to see the rookies come in and their experience each World Cup. And, and, and for some, it, it, some just took it on the shoulders and rolled with it. Some took a couple of days. It, it's, a big, it's a big moment. Uh, and, and I just wanted to ask how... How do you prepare players? How do you prepare them for the unknown? I mean, every every one of us has to experience a World Cup for the first time at some point. 
Uh, do you, I guess, rely on the coaching staff, the senior players, those nine that have been there before? How, how is that something that you can prepare the players for ahead of landing in, in Canada in August? I think it's a I think it's a combination. I think obviously the senior players, a lot of them can can provide their experiences and some background into the experience of playing in a World Cup um, and at international level. So that that for me is a big part of it. And we've got a a really um, those those nine players that have been part of a World Cup before. We're going to probably rely pretty heavily on them to 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 you know, digress their experiences to the younger players if, if they make the final team. Um, I think from, from my point of view, from a staff point of view, one of the things I'm, I want to look at is um, uh, exposing the players to, to some mental mental skills training and, and on ways that they can handle perceived pressure and the perceived stresses of playing at a World Cup and international play because, yeah. I look at it, baseball is baseball. Whether you're playing a club, whether you're playing a club game or whether you're playing an international game, the game does not change. It's still 9v9, 21 outs, and you've got and 90 feet, yep. and you've got to score more runs than the other team, etc. And where I think players get caught up is they put, they put labels on things. Oh, this is a big tournament. Oh, this is a big game. And they start to focus on that rather than, okay, Say most every good player that I've ever seen or come across that I that I know personally, they all have a system that becomes their focus. So the results don't become the focus. They have a system that they focus on that they rely on that prepares them to be able to just play the game as if it's any other game. And that's the thing. It's easy for people to get overawed by something that they're not they're not accustomed to, and it's that. That's saying you need to get comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm. So, you know, I'll look at things during our training camp of making the girls uncomfortable at times so that they have to adapt. And we rely on that in as well as some of these mental skills practices and just introduce them to some different strategies and that that they can utilise to help them, I suppose, overcome that perceived pressure. Because a lot of the pressure and the stresses are internal. It's internal that they put on themselves. And, um, yeah, it's just a matter of them trusting the process, trusting their routines, and and allowing them to to grow um, during camp. And then, you know, once once I hand over that lineup card to that umpire game one, I can't control much now. Mm. Players are going to have to go out there and play. And, yeah, you know, the manager can, can make some you know, strategic changes, you know, pitching changes and pinch run, pitch hit, all that stuff. But really, as a manager, once you hand a lineup card over, it's out of your control. What the players do is out of your control. Yes. Now to the World Cup, not only... We've not had one for five years. In that time, they've changed the format. So it's a four-year cycle instead of every two. uh, And the finals... Group stage and finals are across two years. So uh, we head to Canada in August, Group A... uh, We've got Canada, the USA, Asia 3, Asia 4, and, and Mexico. It's it's pretty cutthroat. It's top two and a wild card, which we're still trying to work out how those wild cards do play out. Um, it's pretty much must win. Is that is that how you're approaching every single game? 
Oh, we're, we're going in. We're going to have to win every game. I mean, I don't think you get... When you go into tournament play, you cannot you cannot rely on anybody else to do that work for you. You know, if you're in a position where you've got to rely on results, again, it's out of your control. So, yeah, we're, we're going to go in to try and win every game. Um, you know, Canada and, and, and the USA, we've obviously got some information on from past World Cups. Mexico is a bit of an unknown. They've never been part of a World Cup before. They finished third in the American qualifier. So um, we're, we're just about to start doing our homework on them through you know, looking at some streams and stuff like that and getting information. Um, you know, we play the, the third and fourth place Asian qualifier, um, which we won't know until the end of May. So we're probably, you know, best case, you know, best guess, probably looking at, say, Korea and Hong Kong, I'd suggest, um, you know, with probably Japan and Chinese Taipei being the two, um, the two top two in that group. Um, so, yeah, I, I, there's a lot of homework for us to do. I, we need to try and get as much information on these teams as possible um, so we don't go in blind to the tournament and we're able to access streams now. So, again, the beauty of technology, but to access streams, you can have a look at games and stuff. And, uh, listen, the other teams are doing the same to us as well. So we need to... Uh, We'll be doing our homework over the next three months um, and then going into August. It's it's cutthroat. We've got to go in there, try to win every game and finish in the top two. And I truly believe we can finish in the top two. I think we've got the talent to do it. Um, you know, looking at... Uh, you know, I've, I've watched I watched every single game that was on YouTube from the 2016 and 2018 World Cup during COVID. That was my little COVID I think, part. I think you and little, I have racked up all those hit counts on that. Yeah, <laughs> those two yeah my little my little COVID task. And um, so we've got all the information on USA, got a lot of information on Canada. Mexico is a bit of the unknown for us mm. because they've never been part of a World Cup before. For them to finish third in the American qualify indicates that they're a, they're a pretty decent ball club. So we're going to try and get as much info and track down as much info on them as we can. And... Um, the main thing for me is if we, we go into that first day in Canada and we know internally that we have done our homework and we have prepared the best that we can prepare, then that gives us the, I suppose, mental um, satisfaction that we're ready to go. And then we go out and just play those games as, as best and as hard as we can for six days and we try and win every single one of them. That's all we can do. And going back to those keys to success, fundamentally, is it what we talked about earlier? Is it pitching and fielding? Are they the keys to success this World Cup? Oh, 100%. I think if we pitch well and we defend well, we're going to keep ourselves in game. I always say to people, if you went into a baseball game and you knew offensively that you only had to score three runs to win or score 10 runs to win, which one would you rather go for? And it's amazing how 100% of people say three. And I said, okay, so if you only have to score three... What do you have to do really well? You've got to pitch and defend well. So I think that the main thing is we we pitch and defend well will be will be fine. Big emphasis for us on camp will be to be as fundamentally prepared defensively as we can be. Um, I don't think offense is an issue for us. I think mm. historically offensively we've always competed very well as a nation um, in the women's game. It's always been our pitching and defense. And you look back to you know, the era that you played in, Amy, those teams that, you know, the bronze medal winning team and the teams that finished consistently in the top three or four, 
with teams that could pitch and they could defend. And we've seen a slight regression in that. That's just my personal opinion over the past two, uh, two or three World Cups. And I think that coincides with our ranking um, uh, decreasing. So emphasis again on our pitching and defence. If we do that well, I think we'll be really, really competitive and, and we'll be able to qualify in the top two. Well, the squad it has the talent and we know every time the Australian team hits that World Cup stage, we, we play out of our skin. So I just wanted to say congrats on the selection, congrats on, on your appointment, the coaching staff. I cannot wait to be watching every single game come August and, and I know you guys can finish in that top, top two. So all the best. Uh, thank you. Thank you for the support from everybody. I mean, it's been a long time, you know, obviously between 2018 and 2023, but, you know, everyone's excited to get going. And, um, you know, the, the team and the, the program's always had great support from back home. So, uh, I'm sure that we'll have that same support again. And it's up, it's up to the players and the staff now. Like I said, if we just, we prepare as best we can and tick the boxes that we need to tick in the next three months we'll be we'll be ready to go come august and and we'll we'll represent the country proudly we know you will and thank you so much for being on the show all the best with the prep and for the world cup thanks for having me appreciate it bye-bye